Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning-fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join HealthBird community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited about the guest that we have today. You know, he's, a, he's an incredible uh, entrepreneur, very successful. His last company, I mean, over 100,000 employees and counting. And now he's up to, you know, some really interesting stuff that we're going to be discussing. So really an inspiring journey. And I, and I find that uh, we're quite honored to have uh, his presence uh, here with us and also to have him sharing with us his own journey in his own words. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Sir Martin Sorrell. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. You're obviously easily impressed, Alejandro. So an incredible, incredible journey that you have, Martin. You know, that's for sure. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Because obviously, you know, I'm sure that you learn quite a bit from your dad too, you know, who was also, you know, in the electronics. Yeah, I did. He was in radio. Radio and television retail. He ran um, what was then in the UK the largest radio and television retail operation. Had about seven hundred and fifty stores around the country. It was a division of an industrial holding company, a conglomerate. It wasn't his business, but he treated it as though it was. So I did learn a lot from him, actually. But I was the the spoiled only child of um, of a Jewish family in Northwest London. Um, born and bred in sort of Golders Green and Mill Hill. And uh, I was uh, spoiled because I had an elder brother who died at birth a year earlier in 1944. I was born in 45. So my my father and, and mother, as a result, doted on me, and that probably made me maybe made me awful as a as a child, and maybe even beyond. Um, so I, I was very lucky because my father and mother didn't have any education. They left school when they were 13 because being the the son and daughter of immigrant parents from Eastern Europe, from Ukraine, as best as we can figure out, from Poland and Romania, they, they had to earn a living from 13 onwards. And uh, my father was very keen that I got a very a first-class education, which I did at Haberdashers, at, at Cambridge, and then at Harvard. So I, I was extremely fortunate. And that was my, my background. But my father was um, not an entrepreneur. He was a managing director of a, somebody else's business. But as I said, most importantly, he treated it as though it was, it was his own. I think my one regret, or I have a couple of regrets. One, 
he he didn't have his own business, and I think he would have been even more successful if he did. And secondly, we tried to work together, but it it proved to be impossible. We we did give it a go, uh, but it just didn't work. Although we were immensely close, I mean, I used to talk to him. I'm not exaggerating. This is before the days of mobile phones. I used to talk to him. Maybe I'm not not exaggerating at all, five to six times a day. And I would talk to him about business problems and I think, uh, or business opportunities. And um, I think it's really important to have somebody like that who can be a sounding board and who has your personal agenda at heart, has no agenda, other agenda. You know, if it's somebody inside the business uh, or a professional advisor, they have their own agendas. You really want somebody who's going to think about you and your 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 personal objectives to advise you and help you. So I think very really important. And it sounds like uh, Harvard Business School, you know, was uh, what gave you really the structure to really go head on into business. I, I don't know. I did. I struggled with economics at Cambridge. I got a a lower second, as we called it, a two two. And today, with great inflation, it probably would be a two one or even a minor first. I'm exaggerating, but. To make the point at Harvard, Harvard is a trade school. I felt much more comfortable at a trade school, um, in the sense that it was much more practical. I went in, I was at Cambridge from '63 to '66, and then went straight to Harvard Business School '66 at the height of the Vietnam War and the Vietnam draft. So the the, the class was the youngest. Actually, when I say it was the youngest. It was one of the youngest, Dean Athos, who was the admissions tutor at Harvard Business School, said we were the most naive class at the at the business school. We were probably average age going in was about 23, 24, coming out 25, 26, which is really what the, the business MBA degree had been built around. I mean, the idea was originally, you know, sort of it was a deal with McKinsey and Goldman that you would... You would go to them for two years, go to Harvard Business School for two years. So you come out of university 21, go into B School 23 to 25, and then come back to them. Uh, now, what's happened now is that the in- inbound age has got much greater. So probably, I think at London Business School, it's as much as 26, 27, maybe even at Harvard's that level. And I And I think that's missing a trick because I think, whilst I think going straight from university to B School, as I did, is probably not the best thing because you lack experience. I think having longer than two years out, you probably get locked into a career if you're doing well, and the opportunity cost of doing a business degree is that much greater. So, but in any event, the trade school was was better for me. I enjoyed classroom participation, uh, and not everything was on uh, the end of term exam. So I found it because my mother thought it was the worst thing I ever did was go to Harvard Business School, but um, but but thereby it hangs it. So I think you know you're probably right. I think HBS was a hot house. I remember uh, Bruce Wasserstein, who was one of the first financial advisors we had at that time. He was at Wasserstein Perella before he read it. He it was bought by what was it? Uh, well, it was a Credit Suisse first Boston. Then he had Wasserstein Perella, and then he he sold out to um, to what was it Dresden a Bank? I think it was in the end one of the German banks. Um, and Bruce used to say, uh, you know, HBS was a hot house, and I think it was. I think it was a a two year 
compression compressed course, which was a greenhouse or a hothouse in terms of business development. So I, I owe the B School. I went back for my 55th reunion just just recently, a few weeks ago. And, um, you know, I owe, I owe the business school a lot. Now, in, in your case, you know, after you um, got your degree in economics and you did your MBA, you got into the uh, professional world. And it sounds like, I mean, you, you did a few rodeos, but uh, definitely, you know, something that was a pivotal moment in your career was when you were involved with Sachi and Sachi there as the group finance director. Is that right? I, I, I mean, straight from B-School, I went into consulting, Glendaying Associates, which ironically, a, a few years later, when I was at uh, WPP, we bought the international operations of. But it was a marketing consulting company, all ex-P&G uh, people involved in uh, retail marketing, wholesale marketing and marketing consulting. I worked on Philip Morris and, and, and Peter Paul. Uh, that was a candy candy acquisition for Clairol on a, on a wave-making machine in which we located in Phoenix, Arizona, which was probably the worst thing we, we, we could have done. Um, old people in Phoenix, not young people who go surfing, but uh, it was around hair products. Heinz worked on H.J. H. Heinz. But then uh, I was actually threatened with the draft. My mother, my mother said I couldn't go into the U.S. Army. In, in those days, the draft was so severe that even if you were a foreigner, you got an exemption. I think it was nine months for every year of formal education. So I had two years at B school, so that's 18 months. But I could have been drafted. Um, not many people knew that or understood the, the reasons for that, but we were. And my mother said, no, no way. So I came back to the UK and I, I got a job with Mark McCormack, IMG, now owned by Endeavour and Ari Emanuel. And um, I worked with Mark. I met him at business school. He was a subject of one of the case studies in management of new enterprises, which was an entrepreneurial course. And I met Mark and he offered me a job to run um, the international financial management, which was the financial management part of IMG that looked after um, their clients. So Arnold Palmer, Gary Player, Jack Nicholas, Jean-Paul Keeley, Gene Shrimpton, and others, Jackie Stewart, looked after their finances as well as their merchandising. And so I worked for him for a couple of years. Then I tried my hand with my father. Uh, as, as I said, that didn't work out. Uh, and then I, I became personal financial advisor to a, a, a guy called James Gulliver, a very successful food retailing entrepreneur. Um, and through him, I was really his, I was meant to be his personal financial advisor, but I really was his bad carrier or personal gopher. Um, but he, he took made investments in several small listed companies. Uh, one was a sweet company up in Manchester called Tadner Rutledge. Another one was Sayre Confectioners, a bakery company, again in the north, New York, then we, uh, up north. And then in a double glazing company called Alpine Holdings. And then the fourth one was an advertising agency called Garland Compton. And Ken Gill, who was the chairman of Garland Compton, had taken it public. And he was very worried about the creative profile. And so he, he, he acquired, but it was really a reverse takeover. Saatchi and Saatchi and Morris and Charles became the largest shareholders. And 
James was advising Ken Gill, who was the chairman, and Morris and Charles. And we were advising, we did some consulting work for them, as we did for the other companies, Tavner, Rutledge, Sayers, and Alpine. And I got to know the Saatchi brothers, and eventually Morris was looking for a finance director. And, um, you know, my dad had said his advice was find an industry you enjoy, uh, find a company within that industry that you enjoy too, build a record and a reputation and uh, in, in that company. And if you want to go and do something on your own, go off and do it. Now, in this case, with uh, Sachi and Sachi also, um, you know, you were, as they would say, often referred as the third brother. Something really interesting that I like to ask you about, uh, Martin, and that is, you know, the um, basically what what the practice of the earnout. So tell us about what was this, what, what was this, you know, the, the practice of the earnout and how did you guys use that for scaling? Yeah, I get yeah, I think people said, you know, we we almost invented, or I almost invented. That's rubbish. I think the Rothschilds probably used it like they used pigeon posts at the Battle of Waterloo. So it was always there. But in a service business, it does make sense to base the consideration not just on current performance but future performance. And the model that we used at Saatchi and at WPP was the earnout model. Usually. Could be three, four, five years earnout. The the problem with the earnout model is that integration doesn't take place. Firstly, because the vendors want to make sure that 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 unit is not integrated or 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 bastardized by uh, merger and integration, and they can clearly see the profitability because they a lot of their consideration is based on it. But it does lock people in. For a period of time, the problem is after the earnout period, and what you have to do is try and integrate as effectively as you can within the earnout period. Otherwise, you're in danger of being left with an empty bag. So, I think it is a good method of buying service businesses, but you know, with with S four, which is our latest iteration, I had three lives within advertising and marketing. One with Saatchi which was about globalization, then with WPP, which was the continuation of globalization and the, the birth of the internet and development of the internet, and now with S4, which is very technology and digitally focused. So in those three iterations, we've used, in the first two, we've used the earnout model. In the third, we've used the merger model. We'll come on and discuss that, no doubt. But it's a very different approach where we integrate and we don't have separate brands. And we have consideration based half in the merger model, half in cash and half in stock, rolling your stock into the to the parent vehicle or the merger vehicle. But the earnout method is good in the short to medium term. The issues around it are more the long term issues about continued continued participation. So then let's talk about the now WPP. You know, the idea of WPP, you know, comes knocking in 1985. So tell us yes. about how this, how did everything, you know, come about? Well, I was 40 years old and my dad had said to me, you know, when you're 40, you look at your first 20 years. In those days, you know, you thought about retiring at 60. Um, look at your first 20 years and then look at the next 20. So if 40 was a dangerous age, probably still is a dangerous age when people are looking back. I mean, Jeremy Bullmore, who was 
on the board of WPP, the ex-chairman of JWT in the UK used to say we should put a flag on everybody's computers when they're 40 years old because that's when they're thinking about what they're going to do in the future. And, um, you know, my dad had said, look, you build a reputation, as I said, and if you want to go out and do something on your end, do it. So I, I chose to do it with a partner in uh, in 1985. We bought into a shell company, so not a, not a SPAC, but, you know, it's a, almost a quasi-SPAC, or a SPAC is a quasi-shell. Uh, it was a small manufacturing company, had a market cap of about a million pounds. And we bought, um, you could, you without having to bid for the whole company, you could buy 29.9%. Um, you could invest 29 in 29.9% by them issuing new shares. You went above 29.9, you had to make a bid for the whole company. So uh, a stockbroker and I, stockbroker called Preston Ravel and I bought into uh, WPP. I had 16% uh, initially and Preston had 14 I bought. I had bought a little bit more uh, stock in the market at the beginning. And uh, we built. We started to build the company in 1985. We wanted to build it into a major multinational marketing services company. And we made about 18 acquisitions in the first sort of couple of years, mainly of companies below the line, as we called it then, or below the salt. These were companies that were not fashionable design companies, sales promotion companies, companies that the advertising agencies thought were beneath their dignity to to involve, you know, shelf wobblers. Uh, we used to call them the the designs for supermarket shelves and and sales promotion. This was very much regarded as being not the um, what the French would call the Christ de Jupiter, Jupiter's thigh. This wasn't the classy bit of advertising, the above the line. This was the the down and dirty part of that. But which but which over that time started to become more and more important. And then in 1987, two years in, we, we had I think we got the market cap up to about £150 million. We made a, what was regarded then as a very audacious, hostile bid for a company 13 times our size, um, which we eventually purchased for £550 million and funded by a rights issue, half rights issues, share, share issue for about 275 million, and then debt for the other 275, uh, which was eventually paid down, or much of it was paid down by the sale of a, a building in Tokyo, which was in the bank balance sheet of JWT, uh, which the defending bank, Morgan Stanley, the defending bank, Valued at thirty million dollars, we sold it for two hundred and seven million dollars. Um, wow! They valued it at thirty million dollars for the defense purposes, which, with the benefit of hindsight, was quite amusing. But the management management really didn't know the value of the the Tokyo building. That was a that was a different era. So we we were we knew there was a freehold property there because in those days, you used to depreciate. Freehold property on a balance sheet by two and a half percent a year, you wrote it off to nothing over forty years, and there was a lot of asset stripping in those days. Jim Slater, Jimmy Goldsmith, were all people. Lord Hanson were all people who bought companies at discounts in their asset value and liquidated the assets, mainly property assets, because they weren't they weren't valued at market, and so you found a lot of hidden value. And we stumbled across it 
in the case of JWT. I thought it was the building in London, in Berkeley Square, but it turned out to be Tokyo. Quite interesting, actually. We got into the company, uh, Robert Lowell, our finance director at the time, and myself uh, walked into the JWT offices after we had had a two-week hostile. We started at $45 in the first week, went to 50 at the end of the first week, and went to 55 and had an agreed deal after two weeks. Anyway, we go into the company, and I said that, Robert, uh, take a look at the fixed asset register to find out where the property was. Was it in London? He came back about 15 minutes later and said, no, no, it's not in London. It's in Tokyo. So uh, he said, you know, we've got a couple of Japanese banks in our banking syndicate. You know, I'll send them a letter and we'll get them to take a look. I said, no, don't do that. Call them up. Tell them to go around and take a look at the building and tell us what they think it's worth. Remember that we paid $550 million or whatever it was for the business. So they went around, took a look at the property, and came back about two hours later. This is on the first day. And said, um, we will lend you $100 million on it. Now, anybody who's dealt with a bank will know they want twice times coverage. So it was worth $200 million. We sold it for $207 million. We had to pay 50% tax. We sold it for $207 million about six months later at the peak of the Japanese property market. Um, that's when the, the Imperial Palace and the site around it was worth more than many countries' GDP. Anyway, but uh, interesting times, interesting days. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. I guess for the people that are listening to really, you know, get grounded into what WPP, you know, ended up becoming, you know, what ended up being the business model of WPP and uh, how are you guys making money? Just so that the people listening, you know, understand it. But we, we believed in the globalization of advertising. Warren Buffett, probably the shrewdest investor on the planet, was buying into IPG and Ogilvy, I think, at that time, because he said 
advertising was a royalty or agencies were a royalty on the growth of globalization. He was dead right. That was Ted Levitt. Ted Levitt was a professor at the Harvard Business School in marketing, and he wrote an article in October of 1983 about globalization. What he said was, to cut to the chase, was that consumers would consume everything in the same way everywhere. Now, that he, he over-egged it to make a point. We did a 20-year reprise of that article at, business school, at the business school in 2003, and it was sadly just before he died, but he, he did say at that conference that he had over-egged the pudding to make, make the point. But the point was valid. Just like we see now, a bit of a reversal in terms of globalization and fragmentation geographically. Then, you know, when I was at B school, in my class was the son of the president of, Harvard, of uh, Procter & Gamble. And in 1966 to 8, Howard Morgans, Jim Morgans was in my class. His father, Howard Morgans, was CEO. And I think I'm right in saying that P&G was regarded as being a global company with only 10% of its sales coming from uh, markets outside the US. So now it's probably almost 50%. So, uh, you know, this was a different era in the era of globalization. And, and what advertising was, Buffett understood this, you know, we used to work on 15% of billings or 17.65% on, on production costs, so 15% on the gross. And what it was was a, a royalty on the growth of global business. So when Procter, for example, launched Pampers, as, as we did launch Pampers for them, they spent four or five years testing it in paper and making it and testing it in paper mills and in America. But when they launched in the UK and Europe, which we handled, uh, what they used to do is they would spend uh, money to get to a certain market share. So they would say, we want to have 10% of the diaper market or 15% of the diaper market. And what they used to do was to spend until they got there. And our commission rate was 15%. So we didn't get, we didn't get commission in the development phase. But when they launched, you know, we made out like bandits. And it was also at the time of significant inflation like we're seeing now. And clients fixed their budgets on net, net revenues. And if that was inflating because of inflation, then we, we benefited as well because we were getting 15% on an uplifted figure through inflation. So we did very well. Um, it was inflationary time. So in real terms, maybe not as well as we saw in later years. But we built Sarches into the world's biggest agency, as we, we did again uh, with, with WPP. Uh, I mean, obviously, for the people listening, you know, what you guys did, you know, remarkable, over 100,000 employees, market cap of uh, close to $9 billion, So Yeah, at WPP, if we included the companies which we controlled, we had 51% of, and, and more than, you know, uh, 51% of, and then we included the associates, so we had anywhere between 20 and 49. We had, in total, about 200,000 people. We had a, I think at the peak, we had about 130,000 wow. in controlled companies. Um, so we did we did very well, but I'm very proud of the fact that we we had those 130 200,000 people. You know, people talk about purpose, and you know, our purpose is to try and build a company where people and their families can can enjoy a, a decent standard of life from from a continued employment. So I would say, you know, if somebody said to me, "What's our purpose?" Our purpose is to provide employment. 
which is is interesting at a time when AI, you know, is there's a lot of controversy or a lot of discussion as to whether AI is an existential threat to to jobs. You know, whether John Maynard Keynes, the famous economist, wrote, I think, in the 1933, that automation would destroy jobs and we'd all be on holiday more. Well, maybe AI is the dawn of the era where he will be proven to prove to be true. Yeah. Now, in 2018, obviously, things, you know, like, uh, you know, took a shift there and uh, you got going on S4 Capital following a Finding of a similar, you know, uh, strategy of what you had used back in the day in 1985 with WPP. So tell us about this transition. How did it happen? When did it happen? And 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 yeah, whatever you can share. You were polite about the. Uh, yes, it was somewhat controversial. I exited WPP. I chose to to resign and um, to to start something new. Uh, connected with a private company called Media Months, which we bought into using um, a private company. I put about £40 million in as an equity investment and um, uh, had uh, brought in some institutions for £10 million as core, core investors. So I had a capital base of £50 million. And then we did a private rights issue to acquire a merge with Media Months, which was a production company content production company based in Amsterdam, but but had gone uh, global. And we used that as the base with four fundamental principles. Firstly, we would be digital only because that's where the growth is in terms of the advertising market. Secondly, we'd be data-driven, sort of a a loop of data-driving creative being pumped out through digital media, looking at the results, and then reframing the content in that continuous, we call it the Holy Trinity, uh, of data, media, and uh, or data creative and media. And then um, the, third, the third principle was going to market as faster, better, cheaper. We thought that was the way to do it. And then finally, uh, the, the, we would have one, one P&L, so not a multi-branded model like with WPP, where you have brands in a way competing against one another, but bringing together the brands as one. So those were the four basic principles, digital only, data-driven, faster, better, cheaper, and one P&L. And we, we then added to Media Monks in the, so Media Monks was in content. And then we, we brought in Mighty Hive, which was a, a data and analytics and digital media company. Uh, that was also in 2018. And over the period 19, 20, 21, 22, we added about 15 companies to the content side and around 15 companies to the data and digital media side. And then in 22, we, we broadened our, our capabilities. Uh, in addition to content and data and analytics and digital media, we added technology services which is digital transformation. So over the last five years, we've now got to a position where we have revenues of about a billion, uh, a billion pounds. We we have the, the consensus we've just taken down for the, we've just reduced for the, the company, but the consensus forecast this year is for about 140 million, 150 million of profit. Uh, and we have uh, 8,600 people in 32 countries 
in 57 offices. So we've grown fast. We've had our had our ups and our downs and a strong, very strong growth rates in the first year, 40% organic growth, second year, 20 in the year of COVID, 2020. Uh, and then in 21, it was, uh, I think, about 40%, 43%. And 22, uh, which year just closed 26, and we're forecasting this year we've taken our guidance down, slowed to about two to four percent top line. So we've grown rapidly. Um, our client base is very technologically based, but big clients. Google is our biggest client, Alphabet. Second biggest is an NDA telecoms client, the most valuable company on the planet. So you can guess who that is. Thirdly is Meta. Meta. Uh, fourth, BMW. Fifth, Mondelez. Sixth, HP. Seventh, um, a, a, an F, also NDA, an FMCG company, major one uh, in sort of luxury cosmetics or cosmetics. Um, and then uh, first, American, uh, an American trust company, finance company, uh, and that's the the top eight. Um, and then beyond that, another five. Uh, Disney, Walmart, Amazon, T-Mobile, and PayPal. Those are the top 13 clients. They count for about 55% of our revenues. And tech is about 50%. So we're heavily dependent on the growth of tech. Uh, geographically, we're about six, 70% North and South America. Great believer in that, that pillar, uh, you know, which is, I think, becoming increasingly important. 20% in EMEA with a very strong growth in Middle East, an opportunity there. And then the remaining 10% in Asia. I'd like long term to see that probably 60, 20, 20. From a, from a practice point of view, content is about 60% of the business. Data and digital media is about 30%. And tech services, which is fastest growing for us at the moment, 10%. I'd probably like to see that 50, 25, 25, because as I say, tech is growing growing um, tech services and digital transformation becoming important. One other thing I would say, I think the world has changed. So the world that I knew at Sarches and at WPP was very much about globalization and the birth of the internet. Now it's about fragmentation of geography, uh, unfortunately, because of the tensions in the world, the, the lack of relationship between the US and China, the, the war with Russia, the, uh, which is likely to continue for a long period of time, uh, making Europe you know, less attractive. And then finally, uh, the Iranian nuclear threat. All this means that the world is a very more volatile place, as you get, we can see every day. And therefore, I think North and South America becomes very important, Middle East and Asia. And if you have a big position in China, you probably are nervous about the Taiwanese situation and whether you should go further, you have a, a small position in China, you probably want to build it bigger. But Asia is going to become more and more important. The balance of power is shifting. And by 2050, if you look at the GDP predictions, uh, China will be the biggest economy, uh, US second, India third, fourth, Germany maybe, and fifth, Indonesia, or maybe Indonesia fourth and Germany fifth. So it means that Asia will be one, three, and five, or one, three, and four, in terms of in terms of countries of country size. So Asia is going to become more and more important. So that's you know the world that I see it on the geography side, 
on the tech side, because GDP growth is going to be less than we've been used to, and because I think inflation will be greater than we've been used to, and I don't think we'll get it down to 2%, as the central banks say they want to do, uh, and as a result, interest rates will be higher. I think clients are going to be very focused on efficiency and cost, and therefore digital transformation and AI becomes increasingly important. So we're going to embarking on a new era, in my view, where geographical focus is going to be very important and focus on digital transformation is going to be important. So, Martin, I have a one last question for you, and I want to bring you back in time. I want to put you into a time machine, and I want to bring you back in time to that moment where you were in Harvard Business School you know, perhaps learning about business, you know, having, you know, those say chit chats, you know, with classmates and, and listening to your professors and case studies. And let's say you had the opportunity of having a conversation with your younger self and be able to whisper, you know, in your ear and give yourself one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I, I think I think you always be more ambitious. Um, than you than you think possible, you know. I think when you see trends, you know. I think I think we failed to do or have failed to do is when we saw trends developing, we didn't go big. We were always, or I was always, conservative, and, and should have gone bigger. Um, so if you spot something, uh, I think going. Be, you know, being more aggressive on it is, is probably the best thing to do. I mean, you obviously have to be right about the trends. But, you know, if I think about globalization, if I think about the Internet, if I think about AI, um, if I think about metaverse now and blockchain, I, I think those things, I'm not so much about about the crypto and not so much about NFTs, but I, I think, you know, if you if you see something go big, don't be don't be shy. The other thing I would say, uh, you know, I, I regret not being uh, as versed in code as I should have been, and I certainly regret not speaking Chinese, and maybe and maybe Spanish as well now, because I think that's going to become more and more important too. So, you know, the the inner advice would be code Chinese, and I would add Spanish now, because I'm a great believer. You know, I think Latin America and the U.S. You know, is the counterbalancing force, and I think you know we're going to see much more. You know, we've got countries playing both ends against the middle, like Saudi Arabia, India, Brazil. So the the world is going to become a much more, um, much more nuanced world. I mean, it, the last forty fifty years, with the cost of capital being so low, or certainly last. 10, 15, 20 years being so low, it was relatively easy. This is going to be a more difficult phase. This is going to be where, you know, smarts are going to be really important in relation to geography and technology, as I said. And I, and I think going back in time, I would say when you see a trend, I mean, I've, I've witnessed at first high hand the growth of um, Alphabet, the growth of Meta, the growth of Amazon, the growth of Alibaba, of Tencent, of ByteDance, of Tesla, of NVIDIA, 
of Apple, of Microsoft. We've seen it all at very close hand. And I think one was always a bit too cautious. One should have gone bigger. I love that. Well, Martin, thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. And you're a lucky man. You're in New Yorker enjoying yourself, and I'm here sweating away in London. <laughs> if you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.